Yeah, Vaughn? Yes, yes, and yes. Episode 26. Two twins and an album. Yes, yes. T. (laughs) T, how are we doing today? That kind of reminds me of the old Yes, Michigan campaign. (laughs) Yes, Michigan. These states do these like goofy campaigns i don't know if they're trying to get people to visit or whatever but uh this one uh was this probably in the 80s yeah that would be like probably mid to late 80s yeah it was just yes michigan (laughs) both with exclamation points i remember they had a song it was something like yes michigan the feeling is dead something like that do you remember that the yes michigan song <laughs> i think i do actually now that you mentioned it now that you gave that rendition i think it does yeah they'd play that commercial in between uh channel seven newscasts with the great bill bonds <laughs> <laughs> yeah and and then they went to the 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 now sort of modern version of this is pure michigan you know yeah. so which uh I don't like as much. I like yes. Yes. A little Marv Albert in there. Yes. Michigan. Yes. <laughs> well, so there's something painfully simple about it, right? Just yes, Michigan. I mean, it's yeah, it kind of random and simple and kind of sort of dumb, but great all at the same time. We'll, we'll talk a little bit about simple monikers tonight, won't we? With, with, the, with, with this evening's selection. I mean, the, the title of this album is... is as painfully simple as yes, Michigan, right? I guess one of the few things simple about tonight's band indeed, but uh, I, I will say from the onset, ap- apologies in advance. I have been a little uh, under the weather here for the last uh, week or so. So if you get a, you know, voice crack or whatever it might be from me, uh, my apologies in advance. I don't think I have the Rona. I've, I've gotten tested a couple of times, but uh but I guess still kind of TBD on that one. But uh, but just a shout out to being sick, which, yeah. which is just wonderful. What a great way to cap out 2020. You know, I mean, uh, been a great year with just lots of positive vibes and such. And I figured there'd, there'd be no better way to wrap it up than to just, you know, be basically bedridden for a few days. So that's sort of, sort of the only way to end this particular year, right? But I will tell you though, it's your dedication to two twins in an album is astounding. I mean, well, here you listen. here you are, you know, little little shade under the weather, and here you are ready to contribute uh, thoughts to this wonderful podcast. Well, and listen, I mean, you gave me such a such a warm, simple, feel good type <laughs> yeah. piece of musicality to really help me through these last few days because you know when you're sick, obviously. Um, you know, having something nice and soothing is so, so props to you certainly for uh, providing that as uh, tonight's featured album. There really nothing, nothing that really soothes me um, quite like what, uh, what you decided upon this week. So, so thanks again for that. As all of our listeners know, we, we do not excel in the world of preparation for this podcast. In fact, we don't prepare at all. The only preparation that might be considered 
uh, prep for this show was a few days ago. I did check in with T as we always do as we sort of, you know, think about which album we're going to do. And, and I did make the statement, something to the extent of this is probably not the best album to listen to when you're sick. It's, this is an album that might uh, send somebody into some sort of illness, <laughs> whether it be physical or mental, but uh, yeah. an, an interesting choice for one fighting some sort of illness. Well, it definitely, uh, it, it's funny. I was, um, I, I had a great conversation with one of our, uh, one of our listeners just, uh, just yesterday, actually, uh, Sam F great guy, avid listener of the podcast. We really appreciate, uh, your feedback and, and all those type of things. Uh, he's a great listener of ours and we were, he's thinking about getting into podcasting and he's actually, we were talking a bit about, um, he was kind of asking what our preparation is and, uh, as much as I wanted to pretend like there was a big grand plan every episode and every week, uh, pretty much had to break it to him that, uh, <laughs> that there's very little, you know, but, uh, but I'll say this about tonight's selection, uh, regardless of kind of being sick and it maybe not being an ideal selection in that way, it definitely kept my brain working, you know? So, um, I guess I had that going for me, which is nice, which is nice. Do you mind if I kick off the show with a written statement? I have something I have something prepared. Is that okay? Can I do a written statement? Well, I just got done saying how grossly unprepared we generally are. Now you're telling me that you have concocted an official statement to kick things off? I mean, oh, oh believe me, I did not concoct this. <laughs> that would you're going to get a few words in and say, "Oh, no way would Nubs wrote this." <laughs> well, yes, please. Go ahead. Okay, here we go. It's a written statement to kick off episode 26. In the galactic reaches, the luminescence of planetary spheres, far-flung nebulas, and distant orbs shine bright. Yet perception can grow dim as the atmosphere thickens. Appropriately, the sun is the one universal constant. Vibrantly red, it luxuriates in all of its mercurial splendor. Red has always been the most intriguing, awe-inspiring, and mysterious of the primary colors. Jeez. Who knew? I, uh, as we've talked about previously in the podcast, I covered music and therefore was sent hundreds of press releases a year for albums. None that read quite like that. What it is, that's the first paragraph of the official Atlantic Records press release for the album Red in 1974. That's, that's how some, probably some intern from a PR office in, in New York for Atlantic decided to capture uh, the attention of press when it came to this album. And little did that person know whether it would have been a high-level PR professional or a uh, low-level person just doing what they were asked to do, they probably didn't realize that the music world was not going to have to work particularly hard to get critics to pay attention to this album, were they? Tell you, back, back when uh, albums were a profitable piece of commerce, eh? Back in, the, back in the good old days, you know, when you had uh, press releases going out for uh, records, trying to move units, you know, like kind of long for those days in a way, but uh, huh, that's interesting. Definitely long for those days. I, I think what's interesting too, and I'll talk a little bit more about, you know, how I scored this particular artifact. It's basically two paragraphs long. And I read you essentially the first paragraph. 
That paragraph ends with distinctively red is the title of King Crimson's newest album on Atlantic Records. And the British group lights up all horizons with its volatile music. And I think the word volatile is something that we're definitely going to have to revisit as you move forward here. So let's do that. But before we get into the volatility of this beloved album, let's see how volatile your ears have been lately by looking at what is spinning round and round for you, T. Let's do it round and round. See what albums have been suiting your fancy as of late? Well, one group that we have uh, focused on in an episode here on the old podcast, and that is The Doors. However, uh, the album that we did had Jim. This album is Sans Jim, and it's called Full Circle. I know that we talked about it a little bit uh, on that episode, and you had mentioned it's one that uh, actually both records that they did without Jim were quite good. and. I've since, uh, you know, checked out Full Circle, and uh, it's great. I mean, it's great. It's musically some of the best stuff that that they did. And, you know, Ray's voice uh, is really good and unique and, uh, you know, really good fit for uh, for that music. So that's something I've definitely been checking into lately. Uh, second is an album called The Last in Line. And this Ooh, is by uh, uh, yes. great uh, R.J. Dio. You know, which obviously kicks off in pretty impeccable fashion with We Rock, which is just a, just a strong Dio track. And the third is uh, by the Lassie Foundation and, uh, you know, one of my favorite bands. Sort of a spinoff of uh, the Prayer Chain out of uh, Southern California and led by Wayne Everett and Eric Capizano primarily. And uh, this is their California EP, which was their debut and leads off with a beautiful track. One of my favorite songs of all time called I Can Be Her Man. So and then they went on to actually have quite a great catalog, you know, over a span of a couple decades, you know. So so this kind of gives you the, the real beginning of Lassie Foundation back in the this had to be around the mid to late 90s, I would think. Uh, so check out California EP by those guys. And that is what is a round and round for me. What do you got, Nub? Those are some very tasty choices as always. I like that you went from obscure doors to Dio to the Lassie Foundation. That's it. Those are some quantum leaps you took there, T. I love it. Uh, the first one for me would be the Peter Gabriel album, Us. This is the uh, 1992 album. And this album always stands out to me just because of the context of when it came out. You know, grunge was really starting to take over the musical world, but there was all this like non-grunge music as well. You know, if you weren't listening to Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, Nirvana, there was still so much out there that was happening that had nothing to do with grunge. And I remember this album kind of being something that stood out in that way. And, and the music videos that Gabriel was putting out at this time were just incredible. I think of the Digging in the Dirt video and the Kiss That Frog video and uh, Steam was a great single. And so, uh, you know, Us is, I think, just one of those albums that probably should be heralded a little bit more, but just came out at such a unique time for music. So that was a 1982 effort. Second would be the Peter Gabriel album Up. This is from 2002. So, you know, he had this run of 
albums with like, you know, two letters in the song title. So then us, then up and up uh, really is his last full length uh, album in terms of studio material. It's just spectacular. You know, it's kind of darker and a little moodier. It took him just forever to make such a perfectionist. Uh, but top to bottom, I, it, it, it's right up there with my favorite Gabriel albums. And, you know, listening to us kind of led to listening to Up. And, uh, and so that, those, are, those have been great albums to rediscover here near the end of this, uh, this rather insane year that we've all lived through. And then lastly, I'm, I'm reading, I'm currently in the middle of reading Steve Lukather's autobiography, which is called The Gospel According to Luke. Have you read it yet, T? I'm it's great. You. Yeah, I'm about three-fourths through it. It's awesome. Actually, the have you checked out the audio version? I'm actually listening to the audio. It's sweet. I mean, he, he like he's so good at the storytelling piece, and he's got such a good delivery and all that. So, yeah, I'm about three-fourths of the way through the audio. I, it's one of those where, I mean, I you know, I'm all for the for the visual reading of books and everything, but it's one of those where the audio version is probably better, where you can really capture things in his voice. No doubt. He his his delivery is it's like he's sitting in the room with you. It's very conversational and super authentic. And that's a pretty cool thing. So um falling in between the album from uh, 2006, this is sort of the comeback album and it had the title track, which is a really amazing song. I think we've talked about that one before on What's in Your Head. But uh, a really strong album. This is sort of the return of the Bobby Kimball lineup and, you know, David Page and sort of got the band back together as much as they could at this time. And uh, we saw them on this tour at least once, maybe a couple of times. And you know, they were firing on, on pretty good cylinders at this point. But of course, in typical Toto fashion, the whole thing fell apart and they changed lineup, lineups once again. So changing lineups is certainly a big part of the Toto story, but uh, falling in between rounds out round and round for me. So speaking of changing lineups, that is a significant part of the King Crimson story. There is just no possible way we could even scratch the surface of this band and their now 50 plus years of existence. But tonight's album, you know, stands out in a number of ways from the rest of the Crimson catalog, but more than anything, maybe just simply for its lineup and the uniqueness of the trio. Uh, formation that led to this particular record. So with all that in mind, let's jump into a little bit of the King Crimson story. Not the whole story. We'd be here for five hours, but we'll scratch the surface as much as possible as we get into Red with the Nerdy Deets, and they are done dirt cheap. You want some dirty deeds? Yeah. You want some dirty deeds? Red. I just like that title. We'll talk more about it is the seventh studio album by King Crimson. It was released on October the 6th of 1974. It was on Island Records in the United Kingdom, and as referenced earlier in the reading of the press release on Atlantic Records in both North America and Japan. Recorded in London, produced by the band, of course. There was no way the the band was going to bring in and welcome an outside producer. That's just not really how the Crims roll. Obviously, Robert Fripp kind of being the one who drives the ship. The album checks in at a duration of 39 minutes and 54 seconds. So I think along with the 311 Blue album, this is the shortest album we've looked at, just purely in terms of duration. Five tracks, zero singles, 
Gee, is that a big surprise that none of these songs were considered hit singles? Shocking, you know, shocking. <laughs> I, I really thought that Providence in particular was really made with a with a specific radio demographic in mind. Yeah, great marketing tune on that one. Yeah, obviously we'll get into uh, all of mighty five of these songs in the track by track. But I think what's what's most significant about Red is just the lineup. The first two albums were King Crimson in the Court of the Crimson King and in the wake of Poseidon, both featured a more sizable lineup of the band. It included Greg Lake, who went on to be part of Emerson, Lake and Palmer and other members who, for majorly differing reasons, left the band. And then they changed again. And there was some alterations to that lineup. That was the Lark's Tongues and Aspic lineup. Actually, one guy from that lineup to Jamie Muir. He left to become a monk, if you can believe it. How King Crimson is that? Like a like a real monk? Like yeah, a, yeah, like a like a legit monk. Hmm. Okay, yeah. I, mean, it's, I mean it's an it's a pretty classic career direction if you think about it. I mean, going from a musician to monk, it's 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 a pretty classic story. You hear it all the time. It's a tale as old as time, isn't it? So, for Red, which is sandwiched between Starless and Bible Black which was the album that preceded it. And then it's the last King Crimson album until the, the big comeback with Adrian Ballou, which was Discipline in 1981. So this did mark the end of an era for King Crimson. In fact, Fripp decided that he was going to disband the, the band almost during the recording and certainly right after it. He seemed to always have this plan for starting and stopping and restarting and all that kind of stuff. But this is the end of King Crimson in the 70s, and it's just 1974. And so, hey, how did the monk thing turn out for him, uh, by the way? I mean, did it, uh, did it, I mean, did he, is he still a monk or? I, it's a great question. I don't know if he's still a monk, like technically, but yeah. he did go through it. And he, he's, a, he's a bizarre individual. I mean, he's, he, he's a true eccentric, real artistic. I don't think he ever came back to music. Um, but I know he went through with the monk thing and he, he never came back to King Crimson. One element of Crimson is guys would leave and come back. What's and, his uh, name again? Jamie Muir, M-U-I-R. And he was, uh, he was only on one Crimson album, the Lark's Tongues and Aspic. So it looks like uh, just, you know, just doing some uh, quick research here. It looks like he, uh, you know, monked for about 10 years. And then he returned to the London music scene. In 1980, played with a couple of pretty, pretty sweet looking bands, uh, and then withdrew from the music business altogether around 1992. It says devote his energies to painting. So, <laughs> there you go. All right. Hey, it sounds kind of like you, you know, I, with your, you know, your uh, focus on painting here lately, right? That's right. A very busy painter to go along with us being very busy dancers. Yeah, I'm still hoping to maybe see some of your work here. Maybe, maybe sometime during the holidays. Uh, oh, you would be so disappointed. Kind of want to see what you're up to over there. Yeah, yeah, yeah maybe one day. So w with all this being said, Crimson was reduced to a trio. And that trio, of course, included the enigmatic and unforgettable Robert Fripp on all guitars and all things guitar, although his guitar... Rarely sounds like a guitar, although it certainly has its moments of doing so on red. Oh, and it also needs to be said, Fripp played the Mellotron too. So, you know, the Mellotron is an incredibly important instrument 
in the Crimson Sound. And obviously on this album, the Mellotron is, is dominant. Uh, John Wetton on bass and vocals. He joined the band for Lark's Tongues and Aspic and is a really, you know, really important member of the King Crimson story. He was only in the band during this phase in the mid seventies, but created some of the most, you know, kind of fabled works from the band, including a couple elements that we'll talk about on red. And as, as listed in the press release and on the liner notes, William Bruford, not Bill Bruford, right? William Bruford. So, you know, you get a King Crimson, you got to start doing things like using your full birth name, I guess. Yeah, yes, of course. Uh, William Bruford on percussives, as they called it. Hmm. Not to be confused with drums, but percussives. And then some guest artists, one of which isn't really a guest. Ian McDonald contributed saxophone. He was part of that initial lineup for King Crimson and Mel Collins as well on saxophones as well. And then a couple other contributors on wind instruments, but Mel Collins, Ian McDonald, very, very, you know, familiar names. Good luck trying to keep it all straight, but welcome to the world of King Crimson. All right, T. So I know you've been listening to King Crimson since you, since you were like six years old, right? What kid hasn't? Right? Uh, all, you know. No question. <laughs> I want to hear your wonder story. Let's get into it. Let's do the wonder stories. <laughs> See, when did you enter the court of the Crimson King? <laughs> um, never. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I don't, I don't know a lot about this band other than I, I do think that a, it was a real, uh, I guess, musical and sort of life accomplishment when there was one day, and this is... This is a while back, but not too long ago. I would probably say it was probably 10 years ago. We were coming out of the Trans Am concert in downtown Pontiac at this place called the Crowfoot. I had said, I really like this band. You knew who they were. I was pretty dug into them, but it was more of a, you know, I think it was more of a, I wanted to see them and pulled you along kind of a deal. And we watched Trans Am for the first time. Actually, we ended up seeing them two nights in a row, which is a whole nother story. It goes along with this like insane weekend that you and I had. But we were walking out of the Trans Am show, and I remember that you were kind of proud of me. You were like, you know, this is great that you've gotten into this band. And they're very unique and and they have some very unique approaches and sounds. And I remember you saying specifically, I remember you saying this, we were like walking on the street, getting back in the car. It was like, all right, Toph, I think you're now ready for King Crimson based on what we just, you know, if this is the kind of stuff you're getting into, um, you're ready. And I wasn't sure when you were going to be ready and, and uh, all that. It was this kind of this thing. I think you had just kind of waited for the right moment to say, you know, I think, uh, I think you're ready for me to introduce you to some stuff. And that was kind of cool. It was like, all right, I suppose, uh, you know, Nubs now thinks I'm uh, uh, appropriately, you know, seasoned to the point where, uh, you know, he can now download this, this King Crimson knowledge onto me, you know? And I think you gave me some stuff in the meantime, but quite honestly, I, I don't think I had actually listened to Red start to finish until getting ready for this episode. So I know that you had kind of said, 
yeah, here's some stuff to check out. Here's some stuff to check out. But I really hadn't kind of given it a full on chance until now. So, so while I'm glad I, I, uh, you know, through showing interest in Trans Am and some other bands that, and there are many, right, that were properly influenced by these guys. I never really kind of dug into it or even listened to a full album from the band until uh, this one. So I don't know. We'll see. Maybe this is a, a seal breaker. You know, maybe this is a way to continue to be into these guys and explore more about these guys. But uh, that's kind of what I recall about King Crimson. Obviously, not a hugely in-depth history with uh, with the band, but that's the, probably the biggest thing that comes to mind within the last, uh, obviously, you know, you guys, you listen to these guys very early and have so in a very sort of ongoing way. So I'm a little bit more of a newbie, but uh, there was a day where I suppose I got enough of your musical approval where uh, I was ready <laughs> for King Crimson. So uh, that's, yeah. that's always what I, I kind of remember. So That's what most people are really seeking, my musical approval. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, you just want to make sure I was ready. That's all. You know, you're just being just being a good big brother, really, more so than anything. So, uh, so what do you got, Nub, on the uh, King Crimson Wonder Story? You know, for me, it it's um, I got into them in high school, and it's a result of the other bands you get into. If you really start getting into prog rock, and you know, I was obsessed with Genesis and Yes, that kind of third leg of the stool is King Crimson. It's just a band you hear about a ton. You know, you read, you, you watch any documentary on Yes and Genesis, you read any books on it, you know, you're going to hear the words King Crimson, but I haven't really got into them yet by maybe my sophomore year in high school. You know, it was just, it was kind of a band I'd heard of, but they weren't really active in any mainstream way at that time. It turns out they were active, but it wasn't in a way that was easy to get into. Right. And so um, I took the plunge by really the same way I got into both Genesis and Yes, which is a lost art, but it's going to the record store, thumbing through their CDs and just picking one and buying it and saying, oh, I'll, I'll try this one, right? So if you thumb through, you, you just look at the, the cover for Red. I mean, really, it's just a rather unappetizing photo of these three guys, right? But I was so into Yes at this point that I, I recognized Bill Bruford. And I was like, oh, this has Bill Bruford on it. And it's called Red. I'm, I'm cool, I'll buy this one. So this actually was the first King Crimson album I bought and heard, even before in the Court of the Crimson King and everything else. And so you can imagine, you know, sort of throwing this one in the old player and, and hearing those first few notes and being like, oh, this is different from Yes and Genesis. But, but it is a good intro album just because it's so unique. And if you like the creativity behind it, you'll like a lot of things about Crimson. So uh, this album w was, it serves that purpose just for my King Crimson history. And then that went into, you know, an obsession with the band. I was able to first see them in 2000. My buddy Oliver and I, who I've mentioned on the podcast before and, and dur during the Typo Negative episode, we hopped in the car and drove from Columbus, Ohio to Cleveland, Ohio, just to see King Crimson. And uh, that's a big deal. And it's because they weren't touring much. I mean, it was, they did like a six city tour and Cleveland, Ohio was one of the places they hit. And we were just completely enthralled. I mean, we, you know, Fripp became our guy, you know, kind of our musical god. 
that we sort of worshipped at the throne of just to figure out what in the hell he was doing over there <laughs> as he sat in his chair and looked down and fiddled with all of his little trinkets and made these amazing sounds. If he wasn't a progressive rock and roll, you know, icon, which, you know, clearly he is. If he wasn't doing that, you would probably think that maybe he was like a chief financial officer for, a, <laughs> right. um, you know, a major corporation type of a thing. Um, but, uh, you know, it's cracked me up about Fripp is he was able to capture such a complex and sort of zany in a lot of ways, not Zappa type, but, you know, definitely off left of center approach to music. But always just kind of even, even back in the day, I always just kind of looked like a sort of buttoned up guy, you know, almost like looked like a businessman, you know, it was always interesting. He's the ultimate anti-rock star in every way, you know? Yeah. yeah. In some ways he's an anti-rock musician, you know, he's, he's out, he was out to destroy rock music a lot more than he was out to solidify it. And uh, th that's one of the things that gave Crimson longevity. It's also one of the things that kind of allowed them not to really flirt too hard with the mainstream, right? I mean, this is a band that never really touched mainstream success in any way. But with all that being said, I mean, Red did hit number 66 on the Billboard 200 when it was released. So, I mean, it was on the charts. It charted. You got to give it that. But really, it's the retrospect of Red that's achieved this sort of glorious, right, like heralding. Uh, Q Magazine called it one of the 50 heaviest albums of all time. Uh, Rolling Stone had it on its top 25 progressive rock albums of all time. I think it was in the top 10 of that particular list. It's been on a lot of critics' choice uh, lists in time, but I think probably nothing more than Kurt Cobain citing it as a huge influence gave it the street cred that Red now has. I mean, that, was a, that was a big deal when Kurt Cobain talked a lot about Red and what it meant to him as an artist and as a songwriter and as a musician, which is fascinating because Kurt yeah. Cobain's music sounds nothing like King Crimson's Red in, in so many ways, but clearly the darkness of it sort of seemed to have sort of an impact on him. And that was a monumental endorsement of this album for, for Kurt Cobain in his short life to, to cite it as a chief influence was a really big deal. Yeah. I mean, he didn't, he didn't really cite out besides the Beatles. He didn't really cite out a lot of non punk, non underground type groups. So yeah, that, that is interesting. And that, you know, especially at that time, quite a bit of, quite a bit of street cred at that time coming from Kirk. That's an interesting thing that he would cite them out. I wouldn't have guessed that. Agreed. And it, it definitely created uh, a higher level of intrigue around this album as if it really needed it. Cause this was already sort of a darling in prog rock circles, uh, even just a couple of years after it's released. So it's got quite the legacy. Five tracks, less than 40 minutes to you. I think we can make it on uh, analyzing this album as we get into uh, dropping the needle. On red. T drop that needle. All right, one thing you could say about red T, it don't mess around at the start. You drop the needle and boom! Title track. Hit it. 
pretty minimal stuff there. Uh, later in the song, you hear David Cross's violin, which adds a nice little, almost pretty compliment to this really sort of foreboding instrumental. But T, just a few things. I mean, first of all, the album starts with an instrumental, which is undoubtedly really cool, right? Again, not looking for mainstream success here, but it certainly gives it a character. And you've got three guys kind of doing what they do. Obviously, Wetton's bass cuts through the mix rather well, and you get that signature high-pitched snare drum sound from Bruford. You know, Fripp's guitar and that kind of now legendary riff. I mean, this is a song that has become really held on a pedestal when it comes to instrumentals. Um, Again, Rolling Stone magazine and what the hell do we care what they said, but they did have it number 87 in the 100 greatest guitar songs. And Mm -hmm. Pop Matters had it ranked as the 20th best progressive rock song of all time. It's simple, but then incredibly not simple, right? So tell us a little about about Red, especially from a guitar player perspective. I mean, what what is going on here with this riff and what Fripp is doing? Well, what's interesting is just this very sort of dissonant, you know, guitar work. I mean, these are not... Um, basic, you know, minor or major chords being played, right? This is a, this is pushing the instrument, you know, to, to produce sounds that are uh, intentionally unique, you know, and, and provide an intentional odd sound. I think that's when you're really pushing the guitar as a instrument with six strings and a neck, but within, to your point, a very simple song structure and i think that's when prog is at its best when it's not muddy for the sake of being muddy and it's not overly complicated just to try and be smart or or appear like you know something that everyone else doesn't or you know all those things can begin to happen i think with any art form that can get a little bit of ahead of itself and certainly progressive rock in the 70s is no exception to this but yeah it's a classic it's th- you know it's three guys that know know what they're doing you know i mean there's there's a lot of moments on this record that even if you don't love everything they're doing as far as um, the approaches or the chord structures or the rhythmic structures or whether some of it's in your you know tasteful to your ear or understandable or too difficult to understand for you to really have the patience to try. I mean, all those things are very valid with any King Crimson listener, but you can't deny that it's three guys that, you know, are very professional. They know, they know what they're doing. They know how to execute at their instrument. And in this case, I think it's, it's pretty clear that they know how to execute as a trio. And, uh, and Red's a really, I think, good example of all those things coming together in the right fashion. Great way to kick this off. It's one of the more focused songs in the band's catalog. A lot of that is Fripp brought it in as a completed piece. The King Crimson, you know, famously was in the world of improvisation and, you know, trying different things. But this was sort of delivered to the band from Fripp. Yeah, unique song in the catalog. And, and as we pointed out, I mean, one that's certainly held up uh, in a lot of circles and, and one that the band has reworked live and, and found a way to live on uh, just like a couple of the other moments on red for sure. That transitions into, you know, <laughs> Crimson wasn't exactly, you know, prolific at um, just writing like songs, but I think the next track is 
sort of an attempt at a little bit more of a verse chorus verse chorus sort of deal and that is fallen angel I want to get your take on kind of the role of vocals on red i guess first and foremost i mean we talked about some of the other vocalists that were in king crimson greg lake adrian Ballou. do you recognize john Wetton's voice from something else that came out years later that was incredibly commercial do you do you recognize the voice and what band it is uh i didn't really think about that um uh was he in asia yes oh he's the lead singer of asia good call yeah so and a lot of people just don't make the connection but the guy who sang on the weird mid-70s albums for king crimson is also the guy who's thinking at the moment yeah i mean i knew that they were kind of a um super group right but uh okay that's interesting yeah i mean the the i actually didn't know who was singing there until you mentioned it yeah, it's a great it's a great vocal, you know. I think it's I mean, listen, these guys if they wanted to could have done stuff like this and made albums in their sleep, you know. I mean, they and were clearly Wetton wanted to. I mean, you don't you don't <laughs> join Asia unless you're looking for a payday, you know. Sure, yeah. And I mean, look at that Asia album. I mean, you know, that's I mean, you've got, you know, cuts on there that I mean, clearly, you know, had a knack vocally and had a knack for producing some good melody and all those type of things. But it's always a little bit of what's kind of interesting about this band. I mean, they really are a true study, but fallen angels, an example of something that they probably could have done a lot more if they wanted to. I don't know if it bored Fripp. I don't know if it, if it didn't go along with kind of the mission, I feel like King Crimson in his mind had a very distinct mission. And to your earlier point, maybe it was anti-rock star. Maybe it was push the boundaries. And if you ever think you're settling into something that's too in the middle or too mainstream, that means you're not pushing hard enough. I mean, obviously there's a lot of artistry going on here as there was with a lot of other prog stuff, but certainly it was important to him as sort of the ringleader, you know, to really make it stand for something artistically. and. If I had to guess, it sure seems like what was important to him was no matter who's in the group to make sure that it's always kind of reaching for the next area where it can be interesting or innovative or sometimes complex for the sake of it or whatever, whatever it might be. So it's an interesting song in that it's probably as, I would think it's as simple, correct me if I'm wrong, and sort of digestible as you'll hear them get. It's interesting to think if they went in a direction like a Yes or a Genesis or whoever it might be sort of throughout the late 70s, early 80s of something that strove to not be so afraid to kind of be more middle or mainstream or digestible and acceptable to a more casual listener. This is kind of probably more of the stuff that you'd hear. And, uh, and I like it. I think it's good. I don't know if it's, if it's, um, definitive King Crimson in mo- in the views of most fans and most who kind of really like to study the group in depth, but you know, I, I, I like it. 
It's, it is funny to me that here we are talking about how like, you know, sort of commercial fallen angel is, but just, just choose any part of the last minute maestro, if you can, and just like play a few seconds of it. Cause yes, the song follows some traditional forms early, but then things go completely bonkers in the outro as often happens, not just on red, but in King Crimson's entire catalog, but you've got like flailing oboes and really dissonant guitar stuff going on. And just spend a little bit of that just so we can prove that this song is not like right for top 40 radio. But it's funny because Fripp will probably tell you, oh, that's a hook, you know, and when Wet and singing the fallen angel, like, oh, that's a hook. Well, I mean, not really, you know, Yeah. but here we, you know, we're sitting here talking like it's, you know, like Belinda Carlisle could have done a cover of it. Not, not so much, <laughs> you know, um, but speaking of cover, you'll find some tremendous covers of track three, particularly out of the metal world. So, you know, different genres being touched on in red. I think that's one of the appeals of the album. And certainly I think the metalheads really get into a one more red nightmare. And then, of course, here comes the, the weird middle section, some sort of atmosphere to it. But the opening riff is, you know, do, 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 do. I don't know if it's drop D T or what the tuning is, but it's, it's very metal inspired for sure. And I know you get all this crazy in the middle, but I don't know, man, just uh, with all the things going on musically, just again, Wetton's voice just stands out to me. I just think it's so strong. It's such a muscular vocal, you know, I just love it. Yeah, I like the vocal too. You know, I think that's it's a, a little bit of a continuation of the previous in that way. Um, yeah, would have, would have been interesting to, you know, see these three guys as a as a unit had it sort of progressed into something that had longevity. You know, and if um, if Wetton could have continued to kind of get, because I think you know, Bruford would have done whatever. I mean, I think his career with yes showed that he was willing to, uh, you know, maintain relevancy beyond, I mean, he was, he was very artistic, you know, amazing drummer, obviously, but I don't think he was married to Prague, especially as you know, the, the eighties rolled in and there were different percussive sounds being made. I mean, you know, you and I, you and I used to watch that. Yes. Uh, laser disc religiously growing up, which was kind of the history of yes. And it takes you through that whole union tour where um, Bruford was spending most of his time on that tour, playing a lot of electric drum pods uh, and setups and, and he didn't mind it. You know, it wasn't like, Oh gosh, I got to go sit here. And I mean, he was kind of digging this, you know, what can be created out of this, uh, out of using pads and using triggers and some of these different things to complement the acoustic drums. So, you know, he was always, I think more, he was always experimental, but not in a elitist kind of, it has to be this or this type of a way. 
Um, he was never afraid to kind of put on a show or change with the times. What and clearly, and we mentioned earlier with um, the Asia project, wasn't afraid to. It seems like Fripp was probably always the one that sort of laid down the gauntlet as far as, oh, yeah. you know, making yeah. sure that that this project in particular, which is his baby, certainly maintained, you know, whatever this, um, I guess, I guess, anti-commercial credibility that, that was always important to him. And hey, that's okay. And clearly, I think it's maintained as a um, kind of crucial identity of, the, of all the work that's been done under this moniker. And certainly with him as, like I said earlier, the ringleader of it. But yeah, I think another example here of kind of what this trio could have been had it been something a little bit more sort of long-term with these three guys. And I think there would have been some interesting stuff to come of it. First of all, amazing recollection of the yes years laser laser disc. (laughs) I mean, how many times did I watch that? You know, yes, it's true. When all of our friends were watching, you know, saved by the bell, we were watching the yes years documentary on laser discs. Well, I loved saved by the bell. I mean, let's not (laughs) right. Yeah. Still watch that. Exactly, exactly. Actually, when when Bruford rejoined King Crimson for the 80s lineup, which he was there for all those those great albums in the 80s, he was only playing electric drums. He was playing the Simmons drum pads at that time. So th- this you're right. These are all artists, right? Gosh, if there's one if there's one kind of like commercial guy in this group right now, it's Wetton. You know, clearly, I mean, he wanted to go on and do some other things, but I mean, true artists, you know, real musicians. These are not you know, guys who are out there to, to just get chicks, you know, I mean, this, these were guys who really were in the art of music. <laughs> I don't even know if King Crimson were into chicks. You know what? They, they, good thing they weren't into chicks because no chick would ever go to a King Crimson show. It's just all dudes. I don't think Robert Fripp had like groupies lined up backstage after the shows. If I had to guess, I mean, I, I could be wrong, but just like a couple rocket scientists who want to talk to him about splitting the atom. That, that yeah, would be like his yeah. version of a groupie, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right, the aforementioned really commercial, I mean, real hit-making potential. Oh, no question. With the fourth or fifth track, which would be Providence. That was the uh, that was the poppiest part of the song. There. That was the hook. That yep, was the that hook. Was, yeah, that actually was. So improv, a huge part of King Crimson's whole identity. The previous album, Starless and Bible Black, was born out of improvisation. This is one track that was as well as you can hear. Uh, a lot of the elements there were improved during a live performance, and then you know spliced together, reproduced. It's the beginning of this thing called Frippertronics, which Robert Fripp would go on to trademark, which is this looping system that he created with his guitars. Um, and he would make entire albums of Frippertronics, the most legendary of which were with Brian Eno, the Fripp and Eno collaborations. So I think here he's trying to just sort of put onto the table some of his Frippertronic work. Um, and you got Bruford just kind of doing his jazz thing in the background and Ed Wetton just sort of all over the place. I think John Wetton's a really terrific bass player, but um, he's kind of all over the place doing what he's doing. And, and near the end of the track, it does sort of lock into a little bit more of a groove sort of thing, but 
yeah, it's just kind of all over the place. So what, what do you think of Providence tea in all of its commercial sensationalism? Um, I, I mean, I don't get it. I, I guess maybe there's a greater improvisational spirit to this that I'm not smart enough to understand, but um, I mean, look, all these guys were very uh, jazz influenced. I mean, you mentioned uh, Bruford and I'm sure Fripp had plenty of that. And, and, you know, the idea of recording improv onto tape was sort of a jazz move, you know, and, and one that um, I think in many cases, you know, was appropriate and, and captured the spirit of a lot of artists. But, you know, in this case, when you've got, you know, this progressive rock band, I mean, I don't know that I want a full eight minute track of improv. I mean, live is one thing. And, you know, I, I love improvisation. I mean, I'm a huge fan of Humphreys McGee and of Fish and um, Widespread Panic. And these, I mean, I, I love those bands, you know, and, and seeing them live and, and even in the studio, having some improvisational sections can be really cool. But to just put together this full track of of noise uh, is, I, I just don't understand. I mean, I, I don't see where there's, these are very talented dudes, but I don't see where talent is being applied to what's being heard on Providence. I really don't, you know? I think, you know, it, it kicks off side two. You think it maybe is there just for those who maybe sparked one up as they were flipping the side of the record and, and dropping the needle on, uh, on side two. You think it, it could be for that, uh, for the, for those audience members? <laughs> well, it could be, but you know, I mean, shoot, the first three tracks work just fine for that. <laughs> yeah, so, right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I don't know how much of it's making a statement by having it take up a pretty decent part of this very short record uh, or if they really thought they had produced something special and unique musically during this improv session. But um, you know, you get guys that are this talented. I would think that you could, if you really wanted to do something improvisational, at least put some structure behind it or put a foundation underneath it. This just doesn't seem to capture any of that to me. Am I missing something on Providence? I mean, you're the Prague guy. Am I, is there something I'm overlooking here? I I would never say overlooking. I mean, you know, each person would interpret a piece like Providence differently. I think for me, it's just within the context of the album. You know, I think it's an intriguing start to a side two. And it sets up this just incredibly loved track from the band which is starless the closer you know so i I think that you know and i think one of the beauties of of the way we analyze albums is you're really just looking at the collective you know what role does providence have on the album well it reveals the the improv side of king crimson sure which is a really important aspect to the band i mean it really is it was always oh yeah significant part of their writing process and the construction of what they did and if you saw them live so you know you gotta love the band to appreciate a song like Providence. I mean, you know, I wasn't sort of driving around with my girlfriend in 1998, listening to Providence, you know, trying to, trying to impress her. You know what I mean? 
But if I was in a nerdy, that'd be a keeper though. If it worked, oh, I mean, yes, that, that would, yeah, you know, bet. it definitely would. <laughs> but if I was sitting around, you know, doing sort of a listening session with other prog nerds, you know, that there'd be a lot of ways to explore Providence. And just like, think about the, how though, like, what would you hear in that? Because to me, it just sounds like yeah. three people just doing whatever they're whatever right. they feel like doing in silos like what and the, you know you're 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 hitting on some of the elements of jazz i mean remember you know bruford jazz musician yeah um i think it depends on your instrument and i, I do think it's probably for musicians than anything else and you know my instrument is i'm a percussionist and so what i'm listening for there is what bruford's doing on the drums and it's pretty impressive the the stuff he's doing with his left hand on the rim of the snare drum and the way he's kind of switching on a dime and just rhythmically tapping into some of his free form is, is worth listening to, to me, you know, listening to the sounds that Fripp is making as a guitarist is like, Whoa, like how is he even doing that? You know, with one guitar and a bunch of effects. And then, like I said, wet and sort of noodling on bass, you know, it's a really, really strong bass tone. I don't know if he's playing Rickenbackers at that time, but it almost sounds like one. But I mean, it's just cool. It's like, listen to him go up and down the ladder and, and play sort of frantically. So, you know, that, that's how I would interpret it is looking at each player, what they're doing. It's the same way you would listen to jazz music. You know? Yeah. And all that, I mean, that all makes total sense, but in jazz, it's more solo based, you know, it's kind of like, and, and in that case, with what you just said, I almost wish they would have had it be more of a spotlight piece where it's like okay, like the other guys are going to hold something down, even if it's frantic, something. So Bruford can do his thing and then Fripp can do his thing. You know I mean? That's even improv jazz typically has an element of that. This just is a little bit too, like nothing is leveled off or sort of tiered. It's just all coming at you at once at sort of the same volume and at sort of the same level of, frequency where there isn't really anybody sort of laying off so that the other is featured. I mean, that's where I think jazz improv and really these guys showing off, because to your point, there is some good stuff going on, but it's just sort of all in this hodgepodge coming at you at once. And I think that's what makes it tricky for, you know, somebody like me to try and figure out, but Hey, we just spent more time talking about Providence than we did the others. And I'm sure we That's could right. talk about it yeah. for another half yeah. hour. So I don't know, maybe, maybe, you know, they're doing exactly what they want. You, you kind of just got onto something with that statement right there. And I will also say to you, I mean, let's appreciate the fact that in 1974 on an album that came out on two of the most major labels that you can get in the mid 1970s had this on it. You know, we talked earlier, this album charted. It charted. I mean, that, that's incredible. Like that would not happen in 2020. It would not happen in 1995, right? So appreciate for the time that there, there was a, a golden era in music, especially the mid-70s Prague area, where you could do things like this and get away with it. And Island Records and, you know, Atlantic Records and Polydor Records and these, you know, labels that put out some of these really you know, legendary works of prog rock, they would put it out and people would listen to it. I mean, that says a lot, you know, I think if you did a, uh, if you did a poll right now, of King Crimson fans, their top 10 Crimson songs, uh, you know, my hypothesis without question would be that in the top five would be track five from red, which is the ever so cherished starless. 
John Wetton is so proud of Starless. You can hear some interviews and you could tell he had a strong role in the song, but it's definitely a group song. I mean, each guy brought some elements to the table and, you know, it's one of those prog epics, you know, it starts out with the Mellotron. In fact, he hit us with the very, very beginning, uh, good maestro that you are. I just want people to hear that Mellotron to start because it's such a signature part of the Crimson sound and it's a, you know, significant part of the song. So it's just, you know, that Mellotron and remember Mellotron is, it was one of the early forms of synthesizers. It, that's tape that's playing, you know, Mellotron actually is a tape machine more than it is a synthesizer or a keyboard as we know it today. So, you know, it creates that mood and, and then there's tons of dynamics, you know, it gets heavy in spots and then it's got this breakdown and, you know, Wetton's vocals really strong. The band has reworked it, in fact, for their, you know, 2018 to the 2019 tour, which has not one, not two, but three drum set players, three drum set players in the new King Crimson, including Gavin Harrison from Porky Pantry. Uh, you've got a, a reworking of Starless that by all accounts of people who went to that show is sort of the pinnacle of the set. And, uh, you know, it sort of explodes at the end in this madness of oboe and string instruments and saxophones and all sorts of cool stuff. But, but in essence, it does have a really nice melody. And I think that's what Wetton always celebrated about it. So Starless seems to put everything together to bring Red to a close, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, the kind of bass line that drives the back half of the song and has that sax solo over it and I think this is the one where you hear a lot of the influences, if that is a word, you know, of this band. And um, a lot of people, um, myself included at times, you know, you probably think that you're hearing something really innovative. Frankly, you're hearing a lot of stuff that when you kind of dig into these guys' work, you know, kind of had been done in a way wasn't that people ever, I think, ripped them off or anything as, as much as it was, I think in a lot of ways saw a great opportunity to incorporate a lot of the things that they had heard in sort of unique sounds that helped shape their creativity and help shape, you know, them wanting to take some unique and different left of center approaches. And you get a lot of that when you kind of dig into a track like Starless or go further into King Crimson's work where you realize that a lot of people out there in one way or another, um, maybe not influenced by everything they did or influenced by everything they tried to throw out there, but certainly one element or another that these guys did in many cases that hadn't been done before, you know, kind of has lived on in a lot of ways influentially. And, uh, and I think Starless is a probably sort of pinnacle example from these guys of a track where you can pull apart a lot of different things going on here that you've heard continue on through now a matter of decades uh, that a lot of different rock bands or bands with a prog edge or bands with a kind of unique instrumentational type of an edge have taken 
where you can tell very distinctly um, where they either got some of those ideas or at the least were very influenced by some of those ideas. And, and in that way, it makes for pretty important track on red. And, and I agree with you kind of a fitting and appropriate way here at 12 and a half minutes to kind of wrap this one up. If you're ever interested in hearing, you know, upwards of 15 different live versions of Starless, I'm holding in my hand. We referenced this in, the, in a previous episode. This is called The Road to Red. This is a 20-disc box set of the album Red. And it contains a variety of shows from the 1974 tour. And uh, earlier I referenced the press release that I was reading. This is one of those artifacts that you pay $200 for. Uh, that came with the box set, which is a replica of the press release. And the press release calls out Starless. It uses the words, sumptuously embossed rhythms and beats abound throughout Starless. So there you go, sumptuously. We'll have to look up what that means. Mm. But the Road to Red is, is one of these uh, crazy box sets that tells the full story. And if you want to hear Starless, you know, 15 different ways live, you could pick it up at your local real retailer for, you know, some ungodly amount of money. So go forward. Is that that one that you mentioned during round and round the, like it has like 30 discs. That's the 26 disc version of in the court of the crimson King. Oh, court of crimson. So okay. they've made, I think they've made six or seven of them now. Of course I own all of them cause I'm an addict, but uh, this is the one for red is the road to red. It's 20 disc. So how many versions of Court of the Crimson King do you own then? Well, I have, I have the original vinyl press on Atlantic. I have the 40th anniversary box set, which came in all these Japanese mini LPs. And it's got like the mono version and things like that. And then I've got the new box set, the 26 disc that we talked about on Round and Round. And that's got all the recordings from 1969. And then I have a single disc CD version of it as well. And so, uh, yeah, just, and that doesn't even account for all the ones that I've sold through the years. I mean, I, I've had other editions of it that became redundant when these box sets came out. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think that maybe you do need your head examined at some point. No, yeah, there's no, you, you think so? Just, yeah, okay. I don't know. Just throwing it out there. Absolutely. I care about you, buddy. Thank you. I appreciate that. So, um, that concludes Starless, and that concludes Red. So nice and tight, T. Five tracks. How many more do you really need, right? Yeah, I wish some others would take a page from these guys on efficiency, you know? <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly, exactly. So let's get into some of our analysis, T. Let's look at, uh, does it matter? You know, we talked about some of the legacy aspects that Red has with certain audiences, but in your opinion, T, does uh, King Crimson's Red matter? Yeah, it probably does. I mean, this was a, um, these guys really were innovators. Now, whether or not you like everything they're doing, whether or not you, you sort of jive with everything they're doing or connect to it creatively, or they were doing a lot of things that you really hadn't heard. And it wasn't always just being complicated for the sake of it. I do think that they did that at times and to me, that's more cheap than it is um, thoughtful or innovative. But you put that aside, these guys still, still did plenty of things that were interesting and different and demonstrating that not all 
certainly not all rock, but even not all prog rock had to be formulaic, you know, and I think it pushed the boundaries for not just those that were looking to be, to explore what can be done within prog rock to continue to evolve and be more experimental. You know, King Crimson always seemed to kind of not necessarily set the bar, but definitely push the bar on, you know, what is achievable and what is doable. And, and to your point about this thing being in the charts, I mean, you know, what can still create a substantial interest? You know, I mean, this thing was never going to be number one, but the fact that they were demonstrating that there was certainly a market and there was certainly an interest for music that brought a little bit more of a progressive, complicated, and in some cases, unusual edge to it did matter. And this whole scene in the, throughout most of the seventies of progressive rock is a big time arena and not everybody's down with it and not everybody's into it, but you can't deny even to this day, the importance of kind of what this whole in some cases, kind of underground, it's nerdy underground. It's not like punk underground, but underground nonetheless. And how many people are a part of this scene and this genre and this sort of interesting set within rock? And and in some cases, these interesting subsets, even within prog rock, but, you know, Crimson set a lot of tones. They set a lot of standards. Um, in some cases, they set the bar, but I think more importantly, they, they moved the bar and created a situation where bands probably felt a little bit more comfortable pushing those boundaries. Um, so, yeah, there's no denying that Red and probably a few other of their pieces of work were quite important. And whether you like it or not, or whether you're going to put it on in your car and jam out to it or not, you know, this is important stuff. So what do you got, Nub? Yeah, I agree with all that. I, I do think it matters. I, I don't think it's, you know, I don't think that my daughter or your son are necessarily going to listen to it, although it'd be undoubtedly cool if they did. But to me, it, it's a few different things. It certainly echoed the, the prog movement as something important and something more than just, you know, wizards and dragons and the things that kind of became stereotypes of the prog movement in the seventies. But the thing I really like about it is it, it proved that, you know, art in general, but certainly music, but let's just widen the scope a little bit to just art. It's okay. If it's uneasy, I think that was the key for me when I first listened to red, as I mentioned in the wonder stories, it was my first King Crimson experience. It's not an easy listening. I mean, it's not the feel good hit of the summer. Now you're not like, you know, going to drive around with the top down listening to red, but uneasiness creates a feeling and a mood that can be really captivating. And red is captivating. And I like that. I think that was very influential for me as a listener. And I'm going to assume for others that you kind of learn that, you know, this is complex stuff and it's not easy and it's not super tangible, but that's what creates repetition. I've been listening to this album for years and years and years, and I still hear things in it that I never heard before. And I really appreciate that and really respect it. And so whether the expectation should be there that all have that experience is unrealistic, but certainly uneasiness in art is good. 
this is one of those albums you can hear the band breaking up on it. This is the last stand for King Crimson in the 1970s. And they left you with something really powerful and really memorable. And that's a good artistic statement. And so for those reasons, I think it matters, especially in the mid seventies and look at what was about to come was this just onslaught of commercialism and rock music. And I mean that in a really positive way. I love all the stuff that, that I'm insinuating here in terms of some of the mid to late seventies bands that became stadium rock. I love it, but there's something about an album like red and a band like crimson that can come along and do what they do and have it work. And, And it's pretty inspiring stuff, especially as, as we ponder the idea of whether this could ever happen again, which I don't think it could, you know, I think we're way past that point. So let's get to the final cut is red on the turntable. Is it in the collection? Is it collecting dust or is it in the for sale bin for UT? Tell us about it. What's your final cut? Yeah, for me, it's uh, collecting dust. I mean, I, you know, you can't deny the, uh, importance and the influence of these guys it's not always for me um and that doesn't mean i don't listen to it and approach it with great appreciation um but you know popping in uh this album and going start to finish is probably not going to happen very often i do look forward to kind of uh visiting and understanding some of their other work and maybe there will be another record that by them that I, I am able to do so or would be wanting to do so as much. But, you know, I, I have mad respect for these guys and for Fripp kind of as the ringleader and for all the things they were trying to do. I thought your take on kind of the art form piece of it is important. I don't think everything needs to be poppy and digestible and comfortable. And I think that a lot of others properly took that influence from these guys and have made it work artistically for them. But if I, you know, if I got to kind of give a specific rating on red for me, it would undoubtedly be collecting dust in that. I don't think it's a record that I'm going to feel the need to kind of go top to bottom on a lot, but I sure as hell, I'm not going to put it in the for sale bin as something that is influential and, and something as we touched on earlier, I think is um, undoubtedly important. So no, I'm, uh, I'm very interested in your final cut, certainly on this one. What do you got? I, one thing I know too, is if you put this one in the for sale bin, you're going to have a, a lawn full of nerds with pitchforks out there uh, waiting to get <laughs> you. So you don't want to do that. I, I've got red in the collection. Uh, it's a little seasonal, you know, it's not something that you just like wake up in the morning and say, man, I just really want to hear red, you know, on a beautiful summer day, top to bottom. But, um, but certainly enough of an important album to be in the collection for those who are really passionate about 1970s rock music. And certainly for anybody who's into Prague, I mean, it's, it's a, it's, it's part of the canon of Prague rock music. It really is. And there's a lot of street cred to this album. You know, if you talk to people in Prague circles and you're into red, that says a lot, you know, no King Crimson album is mainstream, but this one would carry a little more weight than, Oh, I'm really in the, in the court of the Crimson King, you know? And so uh, for all those reasons, for me, it's in the collection. It, it's firmly in the collection. It's gotta be there. I think, uh, you know, any listener who really wants to have a complete collection of 1970s rock should have this in their, uh, in their record collection. But Aside from that, it's not a frequent enough listen to be on the turntable for me or really probably for any other healthy human being, I would say. (laughs) (laughs) 
All right, see, let's close up shop by doing a little bit of a little song exploration here as we talk about what is in your head. In your head, in your head. All right. All right, T, three songs that are ringing in your... Ah, yeah, Dolores. The Dolores comeback. All right, three songs that are ringing in your head, T. Let's do it. <laughs> All right, sorry. Sorry, right, buddy. What do you got? Three songs ringing in your head. Let's hear them. Well, you know, I, I did the Doors thing during uh, Round and Round, and I'm going to cite out a track specifically from that record, and that's Vertilac, you know, because actually a, a live performance of that on YouTube is sort of what got me to go back and really listen to the full studio effort of Full Circle. So I got to give a shout out to Vertilac specifically. There's a great, that there are these great clips of a few, I don't know if they were TV performances or live performances in, in concert, but of the Doors, you know, performing, you know, these songs. And they added a couple people to their band. They had a bass player and a percussionist and kind of rounded out the sound a little bit. But there's a great version on, on YouTube of them playing uh, Vertilac and it's great. You know, it's a really, really cool tune. Those uh, are actually kind of, uh, clips from the beat club. That's a channel everybody should follow. There's a, I don't know if it's Germany or UK, but it was European. I know that. But anyway, uh, the beat club was a place where bands would play and they'd record it and broadcast it. Oh, okay. If you go to that channel on YouTube, that's where this doors performance is. It, which is, you know, an outstanding performance, but there's lots yeah. more on that channel. People should check it out for sure. Nice. So, um, so, you know, I'll give a yell out to that song in particular. Uh, the second is by the great Robert Palmer. And, uh, you know, this is before he started like wearing suits and having like chicks dance in unison behind him and, you know, with all their lipstick and hair slicked back and all that great stuff. It was great stuff. Don't get me wrong. But uh, this is one of his earlier songs, Looking for Clues, you know, a nice upbeat number. Actually, really, it's a really cool track. It's kind of unique if you really go back and listen to it. It's, you know, very upbeat with kind of a basic bass guitar riff structure that's really understated and then driven by a kind of a two-part harmony vocal throughout and good stuff. Good stuff from Robert, Robert Palmer there on Looking for Clues. And then the third is by the great Prince. Uh, this is off the gold experience album which is probably i mean i think sign of the times was his best record but this one's close as far as you know either being one of my personal favorites or certainly up there with one of his best but this is track three kind of a kind of a prince rocker called endorphin machine which is a a nice nice number and a nice uh certainly guitar piece from uh from the great uh prince rogers Nelson. That is what is uh, in my head. What is in your head, New Blaze? That's another good collection of in your head from UT. Uh, first for me would be Who Will Save Your Soul? The little ditty from Jewel in the 90s. I was not a Jewel fan by any means. And in fact, it took me years to really understand and appreciate this song. But uh, it's, it's a fantastic song. Really, the, the bass line is what stands out to me. That kind of little thing that's going on there. Yeah. And then at the end, she's really belting out, you know, a lot of passion in the voice mm -hmm. uh, when she's doing that kind of last uh, chorus at the end. So that's in there from the 90s. Also from the 90s would be the song Money Talks from ACDC. Yeah. Just got a new album from uh, Brian Johnson and company. I haven't 
heard it yet. I've heard a couple of the singles and it sounds it's really great. Cool. Power it up. Good? I think it's called it's it's yeah. it's actually really good. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, man. I think nice. you're gonna like it. Nice. I you know, are I already miss um, you know, Malcolm Young on rhythm guitar. Yeah. You yeah. Know, he was just the greatest. But uh but yeah, it's so cool that ACDC put out another album and that's not by all accounts it's a it's a strong effort. And then uh last again for the nineties would be the song Hollow uh by Matthew Sweet, which is on the blue sky on Mars album easily matthew sweet's best album in my humble opinion and uh hollow one of the really kind of overlooked tracks off of it was not a single or anything but a song that regularly rotates on the old itunes and the old ipod matthew sweet from omaha nebraska oh is that right yeah he's a very acclaimed very uh local legend there coming out of omaha yeah only so. a KU Jayhawk grad would know that. Yeah, I do. I do know my Midwest Plains, you know. <laughs> exactly. Uh, exactly. Well, T, thanks for joining. Thanks for powering through your uh, your little uh, under the weatherness too to uh, dive into this album. I, I I think it's great that it just gave you an excuse to listen to Red. So now you can now you got that one that notch on your King Crimson belt and. <laughs> I will move you on to something else. Well, listen, it's, it's good. It's good to be upright for a little while and uh, enjoyed it. And this, yeah, listen, you know, it's uh, always interesting with these unique selections and I uh, certainly appreciate the selection and it was, it was fun to get to know, you know, it's, I'm not sure it's, it's for me top to bottom, but certainly enjoyed being uh sort of forced in this way to kind of really sit down and get to know it and, and plow through it start to finish. And there's a lot of good stuff there. A lot of, a lot of very interesting things. And you certainly think you already have an appreciation for what King Crimson was, whether you love everything they did or not. And, uh, and this only enhanced that all in all for me. So, so a uh, good call and thank you, buddy. Glad to hear it. And Episode 26 is in the books. We will be back with more fun and games and excitement on episode 27 here on Two Twins and an Album. See ya. about it that's all we have i hope it wasn't too disappointing we will see you on tour until then take it easy